Well, this evening we're going to carry on our series in church history. And uh, when I started this series uh, a few months ago, I promised you no hagiographies. That is, no whitewashes on people that make them out uh, to be perfect or, you know, never having made a mistake. The closest I've got to this so far, I think, is that I might have been a bit too kind to Zwingli. Uh, what can I say? I really like the guy. That um, this week, I've kind of got the opposite problem. Uh, I've been reading up on John Knox, and to be honest, I really can't bring myself to like him. <laughs> this week, I'm going to have to be very careful not to do a hatchet job. Uh, I'm aware that I will have to spend eternity with it. That's absolutely true. Uh, but at least in the new creation, we'll have to be kind uh, to one another, so that's a relief. At least. But this week, I'm going to do a biographical outline uh, for about half the time and spend the rest of the time on lessons uh, from his life. So that's uh, John Knox up there. First of all, though, a brief life story. John Knox was born in 1514, about, uh, in Hadlington, uh, sorry, Haddington, uh, near Edinburgh in Scotland. To put that in context, that's just two or three years before Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. So the Scotland that John Knox knew uh, and grew up in was Catholic. But Protestant ideas and literature were beginning to appear in Scotland during his youth. The best sources say that he went to St Andrews University and at age 22 he was ordained a Catholic priest. We'll try not to be distracted by the, the weather. Unfortunately there's no storms in this one. Because in Luther that would work quite well, wouldn't it? But... Um, we don't know exactly when Knox converted to Protestantism, but it would seem to be in his late 20s. Uh, Knox spent some of his 20s working as a tutor for two Protestant families, and it would seem that he was sort of there by that point. He was very much influenced by a man called George Wishart, uh, who I'd never heard of before this week, but apparently was very significant in Scotland, and preached the Reformation truths all around Scotland. And Knox sort of attached himself to this guy and went around with him for a while, and even acted as his bodyguard. Uh, he used to carry a sword round with him uh, to protect him. Wishart was eventually arrested and burned at the stake in 1546. And the cardinal who ordered Wishart's execution was murdered in his own castle. The murderers then besieged the castle, and certainly not point Knox was present among the group who helped take the castle and control it. Accounts vary, recollections vary, uh, as to whether Knox was actually involved in the murder plot itself, but he was definitely around the guys that were involved in it. Shortly after this, Knox became the pastor of the church in the castle while it was being besieged. His first sermon was on the Pope as the Antichrist uh, from Daniel 7, and that really sort of set the tone in lots of ways for uh, his ministry. Eventually the castle was retaken with the help of the French, and Knox was made a slave on a French galley steer for 19 months. It's uncertain how he obtained his release, but from 1549 to 1554, Knox took refuge in England, where Edward VI was now king, and the reformation of the Church of England was underway. During this time, Knox became the minister of some churches in the northeast of England. He was offered to become a bishop, and he turned it down. He married a woman from Berwick-on-Tweed uh, against her father's wishes, but with the support of her mother. All seemed to be going quite well until Mary Tudor took the throne in England and began the persecution of Protestants. Knox fled to escape 
uh, to the continent. He left his wife uh, with her mother uh, back in Berwick-on-Tweed. And during this time, known as the Marian Exile, Knox would make the most notable connection uh, of his life. He became friends with a man called Calvin, John Calvin, in Geneva. The two became great friends. They were about the same age. I think in my head, I'd always knew that Calvin was a lot older. Uh, but actually, they were the same age. They sort of got on as, as friends. And Calvin became probably the biggest influence in Knox's life. The reformation that he would carry out in Scotland really would be an extension of what Calvin had done in Geneva. He took a pastor at an English-speaking congregation in Frankfurt, but there were two issues. One, the people in Frankfurt couldn't agree on what form of service to have. So everything was in flux at this point. There were people who were coming from the Church of England, there were people who were coming from a more reformed background, there were people coming from the Lutherans. And on top of that, the Church of England was a bit evolving as they were going through this. They had an early version of the Common Book of Prayer, but it was quite hard to keep everybody together. So Knox modified it, uh, but then more refugees came from England as the persecution continued, including a man called Richard Cox, who had actually been involved in writing the prayer book. So when he found that Knox had sort of altered it, he was not happy, uh, and caused a bit of a, a problem for him. The second problem was that a pamphlet had been published with one of Knox's sermons that he preached in England. Uh, in it, he was preaching against Mary, who had married the son of the Holy Roman Emperor. The Holy Roman Empire included modern-day Germany. In those days, that included Frankfurt. Knox, though, had said that the Holy Roman Emperor was, quote, no less of an enemy to the church than Nero. Which, if you can imagine, in Germany, insulting their emperor, that wasn't the kindest thing to do. They also did it before he knew he was going to end up in Frankfurt. In the end, Knox agreed to return to Geneva and started pastoring the English-speaking church there in the building next to the cathedral. I actually stood there. It's called uh, Calvin's Auditorium now. And it's from there that Calvin gave his lectures. But he, that was his church, basically, next to uh, the big cathedral. He returned to Scotland for a year and then returned to Geneva with his wife and mother-in-law and stayed another two years. And it was probably during this period that he made probably what would become his biggest error. He had another pamphlet produced, this time, learning his lesson, he had it produced anonymously, though he found out it was him, and it attacked the idea of having a queen ruling a country. This really was aimed at three Marys, Mary Tudor in England, Mary Queen of Scots in Scotland, and her regent, Mary de Guise, who had ruled, or was ruling until she was of age. The pamphlet was called, here you go, the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. Now, monstrous at that time didn't mean to do with a monster, it meant unnatural, but still it caused a bit of a problem. The meaning and the implication was clear. Knox didn't tell his congregation that he produced it, he didn't tell John Calvin that he produced it, and it caused a huge uproar, especially since he suggested towards the end of it that queens could be legitimately overthrown. It became even more of a problem when Mary Tudor died later that year and was replaced by Protestant Queen Elizabeth. Knox sought to return to the British Isles, but Elizabeth was not happy with that and refused him a passport to England. He went uh, to Scotland. Uh, he wasn't allowed to go through England, so he had to go round by boat and uh, went on to reform the church and what became the Church of Scotland. 
Now it wasn't a simple process. There were armies involved, there were troops involved, there were cities besieged, there was interference from the English, there was interference from the French. It's always the way I think for Scotland, they, they both sides after them. But in the end, Mary de Guise died, and that did much to sort of diffuse the situation, that sort of regime was over. And Parliament passed laws allowing the country essentially to change from Catholic to Protestant. The laws were passed in the space of a week, and the new church, or Kirk as it was called, was distinctly Presbyterian, the form of government John Calvin advocates it. It was also more Calvinistic than Lutheran or Anglican in flavour. Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, came to the throne, but she remained Catholic, and again this caused all sorts of problems. Knox didn't get on with Mary. She'd been Queen of France since age 16, but her husband, the King, had died two years earlier. She'd lived in France from age five and was brought up a devout Catholic. He preached regularly about her from the pulpit and denounced her uh, from the front. She insisted on taking mass in the country, even though that had been uh, taken away. She was eventually executed for allegedly having her new husband murdered, and her son, James VI of Scotland, took her place after a period of regency. He's the King James, the, the King James Bible is named after and the one who would become King James I of England. They're starting to move into another period of history now. But after establishing the church, Knox took a bit of a backseat in in the affairs of the the state. He remarried and had three more children. No objections from the father this time, but partly because the father was an old friend of his. He was 50, and the woman that he married was 17, uh, which even in those days uh, caused quite a stir at the time. He spent most of his time writing. He wrote a book called The History of the Reformation in Scotland. And when he died, because he'd taken a back seat in so many ways, it was quite unnoticed. There aren't mentions of his death in many letters of the time. Nobles and important people attended his funeral, but it wasn't sort of marked as a big occasion. He died a fairly poor man. And in his will, he actually is really proud of the fact that he didn't get rich from all the things that he'd done. He wasn't in it for the money. He really cared about the reformation of the church. So what can we learn from his life, though? Well, I've got two sort of... Wow, well, let's see how we go. First of all, there was a bit of a little respect for earthly authorities. John Knox really has a thing about not being a respecter of persons. And that could be a strength and a weakness. When he died, the new regent explained at his graveside, here lies one who never fears any flesh. His gravestone read, here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. And that certainly seems to be true. He was brave, he was able to do things by that. But it could perhaps sometimes turn into showing quite not the respect that was due. And this was not as common as you might expect among the reformers. John Calvin dedicated his Institutes of the Christian Religion to the King of France. Philip Melanchthon, Luther's successor, dedicated one of his most famous works to Henry VIII. Knox did write a letter to Mary de Guise asking her to embrace the Reformation, but his earlier disrespect had been so evident that she actually took it as a joke. Uh, She thought he was uh, having a laugh. He's noted on at least one occasion to have made the Queen, uh, Queen Mary cry in public after insisting on commenting on her personal life and acquaintances. This wasn't the case necessarily with other reformers. Calvin's first words in his institutes are this, 
to his most Christian majesty, the most mighty and illustrious monarch, Francis, King of the French, his sovereign. Couldn't imagine John Knox starting one of his pamphlets that way. Yet the Bible is clear, isn't it? Romans 13, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honour to whom honour is owed. Or 1 Peter 2, 17. Honour everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honour the emperor. And bear in mind, the Roman emperors were not the nicest of people. I'm sure that Knox did a, 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 a great job of... of standing up for the truth and not respecting the person in that way. On the other hand, he did do a good job, uh, uh, sorry, on top of that, he did do a good job uh, of James's call not to be partial to those who are in authority. So James 2 verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's certainly true. He was no respecter of persons. He did what he thought was right rather than those what those around him thought that he should do. Secondly, using theology for our own ends. Knox wrote pamphlets to suit his political ends and ended up regretting it afterwards. Certainly with the pamphlet on the rule of queens, he had to backtrack on most of what he'd said. But then how solid was his theology in the first place? He had his conclusion, and then he used the Bible to back it up. That's simply the wrong way around, isn't it? I did it for a joke once at university. Uh, I wrote a whole paper on why Marmite was evil. <laughs> we used to have this big debate over whether Marmite was you know, good or bad, and I decided I was going to get in on it, so I wrote a paper on why Marmite was evil. And I used Bible references to back it up, Exodus 12, verse 20, eat nothing made with yeast. Uh, I showed how in the New Testament it was associated with malice and hypocrisy. But of course it's nonsense, isn't it? But we can be guilty of the same things on more serious things, can't we? Starting with the conclusion that we want, and then trying to find it in the Bible. We can see it in the church at large, trying to christen unbiblical societal developments as being there in the Bible all along. Taking passages out of context, or deliberately avoiding them uh, to make their point. But even among evangelicals, we can be guilty of the same thing. We can do this uh, in all sorts of different ways. We tend to try and make a view uh, or opinion biblical when sometimes the evidence is scant. Because being biblical is important to us, and that's right, isn't it? But maybe sometimes when the Bible isn't clear on an issue, we should be wary of imposing black and white clarity when it isn't there. I'm not sure what, uh, 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 if you're not sure what I mean, then think of sort of backpedaling that we've had to do over the last 50 years. You know, go back 50 years, cinema was unbiblical, dancing was unbiblical, tattoos were unbiblical. It should give us pause for thought that there may be blind spots that we have, that we've christened things as unbiblical that might not be. And then last lesson. Commitment to the truth can bring significant change. Let me read to you 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. We might not agree with Knox's theology on everything, on church government or perhaps on child baptism, but his commitment to the truth of the gospel and the preaching of the truth did bring about significant change in Scotland. It set Scotland on a different trajectory to the rest of the UK. And actually Scotland, up until recent years, has done quite well uh, when it comes to holding up the truth. 
Groups were often more loyal to the gospel than their denomination and were willing to break away into different ones where necessary. His influence spread to England too, with the English Puritans continuing his legacy in England. And we're heirs in many ways to that gospel proclamation uh, in England. We have much to be thankful for in that. In the end, I don't think Knox would be too bothered about whether I like him or not. I think he'd be more concerned that we were carrying forward the truth of the Reformation. His big legacy was not the man, but the truth that he preached. The way that he helped a nation stand on the truths about Jesus. And we can learn from his courage. And the lesson ultimately is to keep preaching the gospel. Look what happened in Scotland in just a generation. During his lifetime it changed completely. Well let's pray that God would do that work again here in these islands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for John Knox. Father, thank you for the way that he stood to the truth. And Father, despite the mistakes that he might have made, Father, thank you that he was absolutely committed to the gospel. And Father, thank you for the way that he kept preaching it, even when it wasn't popular, even when uh, people around him might have been trying to do other things. Father, thank you for the way that he passed on that legacy. And Father, thank you that we enjoy some of the fruits of that legacy. Uh, in the books that we read, in the, the teaching that we have. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.